you see that, that archaeology does, in fact, get impinged on and impinges upon modern history, even chauvinistic history from other parts of the Middle East, as we saw in our introduction. And in fact, Mesopotamian history, Mesopotamian archaeology has been very, very much part of the message that has been used by the present regime in Iraq for the past 30 years. We'll get into that perhaps a bit later. Uh, it is true that Mesopotamia is the cradle of civilization. It is the first one that has been formed in the history of the world. It starts officially around 3500 BC, but in fact probably go, goes back even earlier than that. I, I think the real roots of the civilization are at 5000 or 6000 BC. You can see parts of, the, of what we call uh, civilization already there before that time. And probably at that time it was already the Sumerians who were doing this. And people don't know very much or they haven't known very much about Iraq in this country. In fact, until very recently they were still mixing up Iraq and Iran. Even newspaper people who would call up would say things like, uh, now the capital of Iraq is Tehran, yes? But I think they've gotten, they've gotten a grip on where Iraq is at the moment. Um, Iran is going to have its turn, I suspect. I suspect. But the, uh, one of the things I've been asked lately by journalists calling up and people sending in things on the email is, how come the Fertile Crescent isn't fertile? What happened to it? And I have to tell them, well, the, the parts you're looking at around the image of Ted Koppel and the big tank he's normally in front of is you're looking at, at desert, and that's only part of the story, that that Fertile Crescent, in fact, goes all the way around from southern Iraq across northern Syria down into what is now today Lebanon and Israel. And most of that is green, and the reason that Mesopotamia isn't so green in the south is because of a whole bunch of historical ecolog and ecological accidents. As most of you know here, perhaps all of you know, Mesopotamia is a very varied country. Ancient modern Iraq is a very varied country. Mosaic is a very, very good term to use for it. It has always been a variegated landscape. It's always had a variegated ethnic and religious history even going as far back as we can take it. The, uh, in the south of Iraq, you are in an arid zone. There's just not enough water to have uh, agriculture without irrigation. Up in the north of the country, once you get, once you get into what we call Assyria, uh, in northern Iraq, even in the foothills before you get into the Kurdish area, you have a very, very green uh, landscape, as you will see on your televisions. I mean, the, the contrast between what the U.S. Army has been going through in the south and what the U.S. Army and the Kurds are going through in the north is very, very striking. It's right now you're in the spring, you're in the best part of the year in the north, and if you look on the hillsides, you probably will see red flowers popping out all over the place. It's absolutely gorgeous in the spring in the north. Uh, in the north, you have you have mountains. In the south, you have none. In the uh, south, there is not one natural hill. Everything that you see above the, above the ground is a man-made feature, and about 99% of those are ancient sites, ancient tells, as we call them. The uh, number of sites in the country is in the hundreds of thousands. We have no idea really how many there are. We can gauge, we can make some guesses, but it's going to be somewhere in that range. If you take things like 
look at the state of illinois. i bet if you call the state agency that deals in archeological sites in this in this state, you'll find out that the state of illinois has thousands and thousands of archeological sites. you wouldn't believe how many there are. well take a country like iraq, which has had a civilization i mean and and a civilization with cities since three thousand five hundred bc or even earlier and and watch that grow from that point on until the present day and you can see that the number of archeological sites is going to be tremendous. Uh, that's not even counting all those prehistoric sites, the Paleolithic, Neolithic sites that are out in the Western Desert, in what is now gravel and sand desert, but at the time that they were being occupied, at a half a million years BC or 50,000 years BC, would have been a much, much wetter, much greener place. At southern Iraq at that time would also have been much wetter and greener. And I don't believe that that territory would have been unoccupied. The southern part of Iraq in itself is also varied. It's not just a it's, it's a desert, but it's not a sand desert. It's a silt desert. It's a, it's a desert which is made from the alluvium that comes down in the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. And it means that if you put water on it, it'll grow anything. And it grew so much in certain periods that it, it, was, it was fabled as a rich, rich place. And Herodotus told all sorts of stories about it, and other Greek authors made it very famous in the classical periods for the tremendous um, agricultural potential in the south because they had invented irrigation and that happened sometime around 6000 BC and they began to extend that irrigation through time until probably already at 3500 BC most of southern Iraq was irrigated and was planted. Now you don't only have irrigated lands where you produce wheat, barley, vegetables and various other crops you also have areas that are left uncultivated where you have uh, pasturage for herds sheep and goat mostly, but they're also wild pigs. You also have the rivers flowing through and the marshes in the south. And these rivers and the marshes give you fantastic resources of their own. Fish in the thousands or in the millions. Uh, you have turtles, you have fantastic birds in the marshes and in, in, the, in the river valleys. You have certain types of trees which are useful along the river valley. So it's not a completely barren landscape, even at the worst of times when the whole center will, will in fact go out of cultivation, which happens. Now, this variegation that you get both in the south and in the north, it is both the weakness of the country and it's also its strength. There's a tendency all through time, beginning as early as we can see it, for the countryside to split up into its constituent parts. You'll have periods in which you have city-states, maybe 20 or 30 states all competing with one another for a while. And then someone will put it together and it will become one entire, one big state in at least the south. Very often it will extend and will also incorporate the north. So you get the very first empires that we know about occurring sometime around 3400 BC, uh, 2400 BC. You will have, uh, and, and when these empires are put together, when you put together the potential of the north and the south, you have a tremendously strong country. And this happens fairly often. Now, the reason that that has that strength is because what does not grow in the north will grow in the south. What doesn't grow in the south will grow in the north. It makes a tremendous complement. The sort of natural resources that are lacking in southern Iraq, the stone, the timber, are in abundance in the north. Uh, the kinds of trees that will grow in the south, like palm trees, 
will not with dates will not grow in the north, but will grow. But in the north, you will also get cherry trees and various sorts of other fruit trees and various kinds of things that just have no place whatever in the south. So it makes a tremendously, it, it's potentially extraordinarily rich country if you put it all together, and it has been put together very often in the ancient past. And you have things like Babylonia, the Urthri Empire after the Akkadian. You have the old Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi. You later get the uh, Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian empires, which extend themselves into Iran, across uh, uh, Syria, and even in the time of the Assyrians and Babylonians, into Egypt. Um, now, the, what happens after the fall of Babylon in 539 to the Persians is that Mesopotamia loses its centrality as the central civilization but it still retains its centrality in terms of strategic position. And the Achaemenid Persians, the Seleucid Greeks who came after Alexander, the Parthians who came out of Iran, the Sasanians who also come out of Iran, still maintain capitals in the area fairly close to Baghdad. It still it has that pivotal role and also because it has that agricultural potential. It's a breadbasket for very long, for very long periods. Now, built into that agricultural potential, however, is a weakness. You can over-engineer that irrigation. You can start pushing for too much production. You can end up with salinization of the soil. You can ruin your entire irrigated zone if you overwater it. And this has happened in various periods. So you tend to get that, that development and, and collapse uh, cycle going on. And that has happened over and over and over in history. And that is the, this, this variation is a leitmotif. But in northern and southern Iraq in the ancient times, the culture is so strong, the tradition is so strong, that it makes a unitary civilization, regardless of the fact that it is broken up into 20 different little states. They still share a, a one culture, essentially. And the gods that are known in one place, although there will be variations in what gods are called and gods get added now and then, and you have whole new ethnic groups that come into the mix, you're constantly having new people who come into Mesopotamia through time. The initial ones, are, or the Akkadians themselves, probably came in. It's not quite clear how early they came in. A Semitic group from around 2400 BC and, or earlier. Then you have Amorites who come in from Syria, and they give us people like Hammurabi of Babylon. They come in, first of all, as just casual mentions in texts. They are people who are being used for labor. They're people who become soldiers. They then become officers. They then become uh, generals. They also become bureaucrats. They eventually take over the country and rule it as kings of the entire country. But even though these new people come in with a, with a different language, it's, it's a Semitic language, but it's a different language, they still incorporate and are incorporated into that grand tradition which has been running for a couple of thousand years before they get there. We're talking about four or five thousand years of a culture, of a, of a, of a real tradition that doesn't die. We're talking about four thousand years of written language in cuneiform with a tradition of training scribes and what is necessary in the curriculum for that tremendous long period. And there are new things that come in and new people who are influencing that. But the basic tradition in both the language and in the art and in the institutions stays pretty much the same through all of that time. It's an extraordinarily strong thing. And at the base of all this is a social system 
which even in ancient times was patrilineal, patrilocal, and it even had a, a um, preference for marrying your father's brother's daughter, which is a preference which is still very much alive in the Middle East. These things, that, that, that social network, is the, that, that's the safety net that catches the society in those times when the central governments collapse. And it's the same kind of safety net that has kept the Iraqi people going over the very, very bad times of the embargo. The families have been able to survive, being very, very badly battered, but they've been able to survive. Those social networks are there already in, in very early times. Uh, the kinds of things that appear on TV and magazines. As, as this war began, I, I was wondering to myself, would we be so quick, could we so easily have invaded Egypt? Could we think about invading Egypt and sending tanks up and down the Nile along all of these fantastic ruins that everyone knows about? Egypt presents itself in a way that Mesopotamia doesn't. Egypt has stone, stone architecture, gigantic buildings that still stand 30 and 40 feet, 50 feet high. Mesopotamia, because it is basically a mud brick architecture place, with occasional buildings built of baked brick, which take enormous resources, which they don't have. They have to sacrifice other things in order to bake the brick. You have to get the fuel from somewhere. We occasionally have stone, and a lot of stone buildings, in fact, in the north of Iraq, but even in the great palaces of the Assyrians, in places like Nineveh and Khorsabad and Nimrud, where you have great stone slabs that line the walls of throne rooms and courtyards, and some of these things stand eight and ten feet high. Even there, look behind the stone and you'll see a mud brick wall, an unbaked mud brick wall. So that this civilization does not leave as much standing architecture, does not leave as much for the tourist, does not leave as much for the person taking photographs. So that the view of ancient Mesopotamia is muted, whereas Egypt is very, very loud. And rightfully loud. But if, if we could have seen Mesopotamia in, in its glory, if you, could, if you could take those tiny bits of buildings that we find, we find buildings normally preserved only a foot or so high. We get the very, very bottoms of walls. Occasionally we'll find something which is four or five feet high and we, we think, isn't this amazing, the preservation of this building? But if we could have seen those mud brick buildings and seen the kinds of clever architecture that they are, we would have been amazed. When you do see this, the, the brick architecture and see the kinds of things that they were doing, which is also part of the same tradition, you, you realize how strong the architectural tradition is. Now, the, I, I also talked earlier about the fact that even after its conquest in 539, and Mesopotamia is no longer the center of the universe, or the known universe at the time, the tradition, tradition remains. The same kinds of ideas about what constitutes right rule, uh, the kinds of ideas about what is ethical, although they don't state them in exactly those terms. They don't say, this is ethics. They have various texts in which it is said, this is how people should act, or it's implied this is how people should act. There are, there are reforms of, of uh, social customs and laws. Very, very early, as early as 2500 BC, there's a set of reforms and trying to make things more right for the weak 
and the, uh, for the weak and the orphans and, and, uh, and widows and people of, of that sort. We know about Hammurabi's laws and the, and the eye for an eye and the tooth for the tooth, for, for a tooth, which seem rather harsh, but in fact there are other things within the Hammurabi laws which make very, very good sense and, and are obviously set at trying to, to bring about ethical action. These things start very early in Mesopotamia and they last throughout the later period. They last throughout Islam and very, very much of what we think of as being Islamic, including things like the waqf, which is pious foundations. You give money or you give property to support a religious building or you support things like a fountain outside of a mosque or a fountain in the middle of the town. And you, this is supported for year after year after year by a sort of a board that takes care of it and a fund that, that continues this. The idea of waqf goes back at least as early as 2000 BC and probably earlier. We have very, very good evidence that the, that the ancient Mesopotamian temples very often operated on the same kind of system. Again, the tradition is very, very alive. And so that nothing is really forgotten, even though the people involved in it today may not know it's a, that they're dealing with something which is quite ancient. They are brought into some realization through the kinds of teaching that is done in the grade schools and high schools in Iraq, that are done in numerous television shows. You would be amazed at how many TV shows there have been about ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, you, you, you can't even begin to, to think in this country where you occasionally get something about George Washington. How much a part of the television presentation is the ancient history. Uh, they're much, much more aware of the ancient history than they are in other places. That worked for the regime. It was done quite deliberately by the regime to get people I think, to think of themselves as being Iraqis rather than being Sunni, Shia, Kurd. And in fact, it sort of worked because when the Iran-Iraq war came in, they fought as Iraqis. They didn't fight as different uh, communities in that war. And there was a certain amount of pride, there, there's a great deal of pride actually in the general population in their ancient past. And they, you know, they, can, they can cite you things like Babylon and Hammurabi. So at this point, I'm going to hand over to my colleague here who will take us beyond the point at which, uh, at which Mesopotamia is taken up by Islam, I assume.